Greetings, scholares violentias. See, see, that's Latin, because I'm cultured like that. Anyway, how's everybody doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty awesome, personally. I'm here in my new apartment studios in Seattle. Uh, not the most acoustically sound, but we'll see what we can do. Anyway, just want to let you all know that I'm still working on the backlog episodes that I recorded when I was still in Minnesota, and I miss everyone there sorely already, uh, just so you know. Um... But uh, more are coming, uh, and I'm going to be starting to record here in Seattle pretty soon. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people that I am just dying to talk to, so please stay tuned for that. Also, stay tuned for a uh, grand announcement of uh, a new direction that Fightcast is going to be heading in. Uh, more of the... Uh, uh, we, we hope to bring you more regular content and uh, just overall better quality content by the people we're going to be collaborating with, so please stay tuned for that uh, hefty announcement. Anyway, uh, the episode you're about to listen to was recorded at uh, my dojo, the Kaishin Dojo in West St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, with my sensei, uh, Al Kilgore. Al Kilgore is the sensei of the Kaishin Shinkageru uh, School of Japanese Swordsmanship. Uh, this guy was a uh, very huge influence on my life, and uh, he, he is still a teacher I have an amazing amount of respect for. And uh, I'm very happy to share an interview I did with him with you, with some uh, bonus content of the uh, class that I recorded, uh, released with his permission. So uh, please enjoy this. Uh, I think you might want to turn your volume up slightly, uh, if I can't correct the volume enough. But uh, (laughs) the thing about Sensei is that, uh, I mean, he's got a good projection when he's in class, but he, uh, he otherwise speaks in a very soft and measured tone, so... Uh, I'll do my best to make him audible. Uh, if not, just turn your volume up a little bit. Anyway, uh, without further ado, I present to you Sensei Al Kilgore. In Zen, there is a saying beat the grass and scare up the snake. Just as you beat the grass to scare up the snake that lies within, there is a technique of surprising your opponent to cause his mind to become agitated. Deception is doing something unexpected by your opponent and surprising him. This is the martial arts. Once surprised, your opponent's mind will be taken and his skill undone. Raising your fan or hand in front of him will also take your opponent's mind. Tossing aside the sword you are carrying is also a martial art. If you have attained the skill of no sword, what will a sword be to you? Another man's sword is your sword. This is the function of grasping the opportunity. Yagi Muninori, The Life-Giving Sword Want to fight? We'll give you a fight. Welcome to Fightcast. Hello again, dear listeners. This is David. Uh, welcome back to Fightcast. It is uh, great to see you after our long hiatus. Uh, I promise I'll get into a full explanation about what happened there. Uh, in the meantime, I'm just going to keep you wondering. Uh, so where I'm at right now, and the reason you might hear a slight echo, is that I am at the dojo that I have uh, been a member of in some capacity, at least since uh, since a long time. I want to say since about 2004 yeah, it's or been, so. Yeah, that sounds been, been right. been a long um, time. Uh, I'm here with Sensei Al Kilgore of the Kaishin Dojo, uh, and I am also here with Kirsten Wade. Say hi, Kirsten. Hello. Um this uh, this is very special. I've been wanting to I've been wanting to record a uh, podcast with you for quite some time, Sensei, and 
Uh, I'm really happy that we finally get a chance to do it. Uh, but uh, what I kind of want to get into uh, most of all is what uh, sets Kaishin apart from, uh, as you were saying, the Koru system, uh, from a lot of people practicing uh, the sword art nowadays, uh, how it, where it came from, uh, the major people involved, uh, the major philosophies at work uh, in, uh, in your teaching style, and uh, what you consider to be the destination where you want to kind of take this. Uh, so uh, let, let's kind of start out at the beginning. How did you get involved in uh, Japanese swordsmanship? Uh, I, I walked past the dojo when I was a kid and <laughs> stuck my head in, and the rest is history. Yeah. It wasn't really, uh, uh, I mean, it was, I'd like to tell people that it was very romantic, and I went to Japan to study, but I didn't. I, I yeah. learned, learned in a little place, uh, humble, humble, humble beginnings. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the thing that you, you, you were talking about, um, wanting to touch on is like what really is what's going on with with teaching this stuff uh, is that uh, most people uh, come to Japanese sword arts through the lens of uh, Musa Shindenru Yaido or through Kendo and these are the world's most common Japanese sword arts and I know you've heard me say that a million times mm -hmm. but you know the listeners have it, so. <laughs> well well for your listeners that you know like when you shut your eyes and you picture somebody practicing Japanese swordsmanship there's a guy in black he's got a sword and he's sitting down sometimes and drawing and then sometimes he's standing up and doing stuff and that's about it uh, maybe he's got kendo armor on sometimes and he's moving a shinai around but these are not uh, these are not the types of sword arts that are uh, necessarily what I would say historically relevant to what I'm doing here. And the reason I say that is because they've been defanged. I mean, uh, kendo used to be, used to look closer to could easily degenerate into something that looked like a jiu-jitsu match, mm -hmm. uh, and that's changed, and it had to. Um, and uh, swordsmanship in general, uh, most people always wonder what the difference is between Iaido and Kenjutsu and Kendo. Well, Kendo is a sport. Iaido is uh, is a it's a path of a martial art, and its its goal isn't necessarily to to be able to be combatively relevant. And that gets into a philosophical difference uh, that I wasn't even aware of until I became older. And the big one is uh, the difference between Budo and Bujutsu. Mm -hmm. And Budo is what people hear, but uh, you could study Budo and not be any good at the methodology. And so I happen to believe, because I came at it from this angle, I didn't, I didn't study it uh, as, a, as an art for art's sake or for other types of moving meditation explanations that people get. Mm -hmm. uh, I studied it because I, it was close by and I liked it and the so it was just happenstance but the, the thing that kept me trying at it and, and going after it had to do with the efficacy of what was being taught so uh, not necessarily the method in which it was being taught but certainly what what was happening with the technique so for instance uh, in kendo you might not ever touch a sharp sword in the Aido, you might mm. never touch a sharp sword you may never most likely you will never learn uh, the dynamics of blocking an actual cut with a sword, uh -huh. and that's a that's an indictment that's related to uh, to the times. It's not really that the people that are studying these things are wrong. It's just the times that they are in uh, make that art accessible to them, uh -huh. and so that's nice. It's just not what I'm what a, as an adult I'm interested in, uh -huh. and. Uh, 
as a child training you know it wasn't what I was exposed to so it's an alien idea for me so for instance the first time I visited in the Idaho school the Boken didn't have any splinters or uh, everything was nice and clean and they never made any physical contact with one another it was very sterile for me yeah Uh, I've heard you use that term quite a lot sterilized yeah and it, it is uh it is true that you don't get that exposure in those schools uh, and I'd like to to also point out that you know one of the reasons that I'm doing things now the way I'm doing them uh, meaning Kaishin methodology is and you, you'll notice I'm not using the word style yeah <laughs> uh, because uh, style is a is an academic term that I'm not sure exists for me mm-hmm. um, but the the reason that uh, I've focused on trying to give this to people in the way that I do was because Koru methodology is notorious for not producing a standardized student. And for the people who are unfamiliar, uh, what is Koru? Uh, Koru is literally old school, I think, and um, those schools were not like we think of, right? So now you go into a modern school, you'll see people standing in lines, drilling. Um, that's not how they train. Most of them trained outside. Uh, in in clearings, uh, a lot of their training was based based on uh, armored. They'd put on old pieces of armor and pad up some weapons, and they would. I mean, if you've seen any of the missionary Portuguese drawing Portuguese missionary drawings of what it looked like, it's literally a pile of people fighting, <laughs> uh, and it looks like a lot of fun to me. Uh, but yeah. and I'm sure that it was fun for them. Uh, but there were they also had other types of training too. So, but Kenjutsu training was related to sword on sword, sword on spear, sword on other weapons, you know, so like the Japanese notion of fairness was at play, meaning you would bring to the table whatever you thought gave you the best advantage, so, uh, which contrasts very sharply from chivalric notions of fairness, so, uh, our, like a joust, or, yeah. or uh, trial by combat, mm-hmm. uh, people were supposed to be equally armed, yep. and that was... I mean, that was our notion of fairness. They didn't have that, so their notion of fairness was whatever gave them the best advantage. So uh, no, you know what it's like to fight against a spear. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, very fair, no. Mm-hmm. It's fair if the other guy's not any good, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, a spear, a spear fight is a pretty unbalanced fight. Uh, so uh, that, that's at work in their thinking, in their old training methodologies. Yeah. So their notion of fairness focused more on the skill level of the fighter rather than the actual weapon being used. Both, yeah, they'd stick them together. Uh, they weren't exactly separate. Yeah. So, uh, for instance, uh, one of the people that defeated uh, the swordsman Musashi that everybody's familiar with uh-huh. uh, used kusarigama, which is a, a kama sickle-looking thing with a, a chain and a weight. Yeah. And uh, he didn't kill Musashi. Um, so, but I mean, that's a very fairly non-standard battlefield weapon. You wouldn't see that a lot. And to clarify, the kusarigama uh, was the scythe part um, swung around, or was it the, uh, the or was it the weight part? It was the weight. Um, okay. And you know, I've seen all kinds of different different things being used to try to simulate that. And and there's a literally a handful of people left that know how to how that worked. And yeah. I, I'm of the opinion it probably worked pretty good mm-hmm. uh, against one swordsman yeah. who was of a particular mindset. Uh, I'm not sure um, that. 
it worked against a lot of them because a lot of them still use swords. Right. So uh, you could, for instance, uh, one of the techniques is to trap the blade with the chain, but if you turn the blade at the correct angle and shake it once, the chain falls off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so, so to backtrack just a little bit, <coughs> excuse me, uh, to backtrack just a little bit uh, with regards to uh, Kaishin, Kaishin is uh, your uh, methodology, kind of, mm -hmm. uh, your school of thought, but the base, uh, if we have to use the word style, I guess, uh, was uh, Shinkagiru. Oh, yes, yeah. And, uh, now, and where did the Shinkagiru uh, come from? Uh, Shinkagiru is a, is a style that developed probably right around what we would call the Renaissance. Okay. And, you know, so your listeners can place it in the proper time frame. Uh, so it was an unarmored fighting methodology. It wasn't for armored fighting. Mm -hmm. And the overall effect of, of that meant that uh, in armored fighting, the change happened was that you were squatted down really low. Yeah. And the swords were field swords. They were really big swords. They were nodachi. Mm -hmm. um, and so they would go in with all they had. Um, when, when you're upright, you can't afford to do that because you can move faster. And really the swords were longer. Mm -hmm. uh, in in the school originally, and the 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 upright style of fighting became very prevalent because there's no more armor and it became peacetime. Yep. And so it became very very dangerous to not have the right technique against a, against an opponent who was trained to fight like that. So they were not, you know, there's this wonderful myth that things stayed went one way and stayed that way, uh, but they never did. They've never done that uh, in the Chicago methodology. And I use methodology because it's spread everywhere. It got all yeah. over everything. Almost every school's got some echo of it somewhere. Yeah. Uh, you can see it in the in the term subamigaishi. Uh, but the because that technique exists in every Japanese martial art, they have this notion of a quick quick directional change. Yeah. So the uh, the other one is shinmyoken, but we won't get into that one. But the, <laughs> the we could do an entire podcast on that concept. I think. I, yeah. Yeah. yeah shinmyoken is. Is a, is, a, is a central theory uh, of martial arts. But mm. if, you, if you look at that and you see, you know, number one, that the traditional, like, Yagyu Shinkage school, you know, mm. the, the actual really serious main branch, all those people became government officials early on. Yeah. And so like, the school didn't last 100 years. Including Muninari, who wrote The, uh, the Life-Giving Sword, for instance. Uh, yeah, yeah, he, he and his father both. Yeah, yeah, they were advisors to the first two shoguns. Mm -hmm. um, I could be, it might have been a third, but I don't know. At the same time, the guy who founded Itoru was also a teacher to the same mm -hmm. shoguns. So there's a lot of politics involved. And, and once you put that in there and then you realize that the school was passed down only along bloodlines, you know, uh, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree in most cases, but, you know, it only takes one, right? And so that's literally what occurred in that school. The, the teachers uh, became not so serious swordsmen anymore. And at some point, uh, for instance, we have this book called The uh, Life-Giving Sword or The Sword in the Mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and that book was a secret book. And most people don't realize it, but uh, it, you were, they were, their family was told not to open it, right? And there was a swordsman that was two or three generations removed from that. And the curse was that if you opened it, you would go blind, right? Yeah. So he didn't like what he was being taught. And so he cracked that book open. And lo and behold, he, he got something out of it. And so he kind of set the school back on track. Okay. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's some lore in there that is 
given to me by hearsay among people that are active in in the Oahu branch now. Yep. But I, I'm not too worried about verification of that. But what I'm trying to tell you is it was just a different time. Mm-hmm. And so they had good teachers, they had bad teachers, and some techniques were emphasized and others were de-emphasized. And so how well can you keep it together? And you know the truth is is that they were all pretty solid people and they tried hard, and so they did a pretty good job of it. But they had students that were really gifted that never were going to be allowed to teach. Mm. So do the math, right? And, I see. And Nobutsuna, who actually founded the Shinkagi methodology, uh, he had 400 students in his lifetime. And so, like, it's everywhere. And, and so, like, the idea that, that it's always done this way and passed down by this way is... That's a romantic notion, but really the people that carry this from one generation to the other, um, even in Japan, were people that had the passion for it, and uh-huh. it wasn't always in the family. The, the, the Yagyu did keep it in the family for a very, very long time, but even now, you know, one of the things I wish that they would do, um, the, the current headmaster is like an adopted into the family so they could continue on, uh-huh. and that's probably in keeping with their methods uh, but they have students in that school that are better teachers than he is yeah. and they will never be allowed to teach and I think that's really sad <laughs> but I'm an American and so like that I'm coming at it from that point of view and yeah. so it's important to to put to frame that that way um, but Kuru methodology doesn't make a standard student so like every you know you could have five people training together for a lifetime they don't all learn the same thing sometimes yeah uh, especially if the teacher doesn't like one of them uh, and he's just too hard-headed to quit. I'm raising my hand right now. I so, uh, <laughs> But I can tell you uh, one of the things that allow us as Americans to look at this is that we, we live in a pretty comfortable society as it is. Mm-hmm. And people here have genuine passion and genuine love. And the model that I followed for looking at this was, you know, first there's this notion that you have to be Japanese to learn this. Yeah, uh, and many uh, people unfortunately kind of still hold that notion. Yeah, and the other one is that if you learn from a Japanese teacher first, you're going to be very good, and that's not true. Uh, you're go- you learn from a good teacher. His his uh, it's a very American point of view that his that his cultural makeup is irrelevant. Yeah, <laughs> it's what he can do as an individual. That's a very American viewpoint, and I just happen to think it's sacred. Uh, the other side thinks it's the other way, and that's okay. I don't I don't need to be validated either way I don't care no one yeah. can stop me from doing what I'm doing so uh, I am of the opinion that um, that believing that if I look at an orchestra if I go to Japan or China and I listen to classical music uh, or a piece from Beethoven or Tchaikovsky that I can identify yeah I I can identify it right do I need to see the people playing playing those instruments no do I need to know where the instruments came from? No, those instruments were made in places all over the world. Some of them were made in Europe. Uh, some of them were made in China. Uh, but the guy who's playing practiced really hard, and that's why he's in that orchestra. Mm. That's art. Yeah. That is the common human thread here that I'm trying to pull on. So if I look at that, and I look at other arts besides music, and I look at painting or sculpture or poetry, yeah, it's the same. Uh, you can You can... This is a human thing. There are unique Japanese approaches to it, but I happen to believe that the common thread of, of being human and humans need art in order to survive. It's a uniquely human thing, by the way. You don't, art doesn't do anything. 
really, I mean, like pure, like yeah. fine art, does nothing except for make your life better somehow. <laughs> but it doesn't keep you out of the rain. It doesn't put, it doesn't feed your children. It doesn't do any of that. Yeah. Uh, it just, it exists because you are human. And, and so that's the, that's a real thing to me. And so uh, Kai Shin means open spirit. And so if I open my spirit to this and I, and I embrace the idea that if I practice well, mm-hmm. um, that I can learn something. And if I practice under a teacher who believes that, I can learn something. So what I've done is I've taken the, the techniques. There's like, I think there's like 54 original Yagyukai. They have to be done paired. Yeah. The truth is I stopped doing them 18 or 19 years old because you need somebody that knows them in order to practice them. When I left home, there was no one. So like I, I got pieces of things that I really, really liked and really, really drove home. So in our school, we have these basic entries. Mm-hmm. They all show up in there. Uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I have to backtrack. What, sure. what, what do you mean when you talk about an entry? Um, the uh, that, that gets at the heart of kinjitsu. So Shinkage originally is a kinjitsu art. Mm-hmm. So it's not iaijitsu, meaning that your sword is... When you draw and, and perform an action, that's an act of iaijitsu. You might not be any good at kinjitsu, but a sneak attack with a good sword is pretty good. Um, but with kenjutsu it's already on it's already flying everything's moving so um the biggest problem with it is closing the gap and crossing swords once you cross swords um, and you pull out of that if you make it out of there the idea that you're going to go back in without dying is like it gets exponentially lower each time you try it so like it goes from like it goes from almost certain death getting out to certain death when you go back in because yeah. the odds are just against you so um, based on the idea that that the other guy is trained properly so knowing that you're going to die um, that initial motion where you cross those blades and you get in you close the gap where you can deliver your cut that's an entry and you know from holding center guard posture when if you think back to sometimes when you're facing an opponent in the dojo and they're holding their center guard um, and this is you can describe to people what Senegard is. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Well, I mean, uh, Senegard basically the um, uh, right foot forward sword is held right around the area of your sternum. If you project outwards from there, you're holding it about there. Sword point is at their throat. Um, extremely stable position. Uh, really, kind of a blank slate for things to go on to from that. Uh, I know that you've described it many times, and I absolutely love how you describe it as uh, you're a stone in the river, yeah. and uh, everything else is just kind of flowing around you. And uh, one, well, one way that I was describing it to a new student whose first time in the dojo was tonight, uh, the way I explained it to her is that this is a fortress. Mm-hmm. This is a fortification, and you have to find a way to bust in. Yeah, that, that's precisely it. You're you're projecting power from a fortress. That's yes. that's in fact the old writings actually say that. So you're you're accurate with that description. You hold that in mind when you're when you're holding yeah. that, and now, yeah. now you have to enter into somebody that's got that right. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy. And it's more than just a physical position as well. It's a mindset. Yes. yes, yeah. It's a it's a very real position of 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 where your mind is, and and that is where the actual art form resides. It doesn't reside in your hands or feet or in your sword it, it, it's there are two swords there's one in your hand and, and 
is the one in your mind and that's the got to be the sharp one so if you if you realize that your entry into that combat is based around that um, the other person isn't busy trying to stay alive he's busy trying to kill you that's a very different thing so mm -hmm. if we look at uh, if we look at Renaissance style rapier fighting where they're hanging back mm -hmm. and they're poking with the point they knew something about geometry they were informed by by Euclidean geometry principles and they knew where they wanted to be they knew they wanted to stay alive and hanging back and, and doing that to your opponent is a pretty good way to deal with it um, but if you were to take both both people who are fighting with rapier and they were both both decided that the only way to get close enough to, to kill him is to accept the fact that I could get killed. Uh, it's a lot like being in love, right? You can't risk any, you know, if you're not at risk, you're not actually going to experience it, right? And so, like, if you're rapier fighting, you're dabbling. And I'm, I'm using this as a pretty flippant term to say, and I don't mean to insult those people. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not the same. And so, like, they're able to stay alive. And so when you look at the, if you look at the morphology of, of the swords and you look at, the you know if you look at historical duels at, at dueling records you see that very often somebody did live <laughs> most of the time mm -hmm. right and uh but it's not so in japan most of the time they both died and you know like the you yeah, if you look at richard burton's book uh on swords he was a he was an aficionado on swords mm -hmm. uh, not the actor but actual i was about to uh, ask yeah yeah uh, richard burton was a he was a uh, british adventurer uh, but he he wrote a book on, on swords and, and he described it perfectly about why Europe went to a thrusting sword as opposed to a cutting sword. And it makes perfect sense. You know, Europe had lots of neighbors that were very ingenious. And so you couldn't just be like Japan and stay one way. You really had to change in order to, otherwise you were going to no longer be German or no longer be French or no longer be Spanish. I mean, you were going to change because mm -hmm. you're going to get conquered. Um, so that those are very fundamental differences that you see in in that style of fighting, so those entries are set up to amplify your ability to kill your opponent. Mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily that you survive. That's not really a big portion. Of, that's not a variable that they're worried about. Indeed, the, the, the parameters of success are just different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't, they, yeah. They're they're not Christian based, right? So, like we've had all this Christian culture, and in Christian ideology, we really do believe in you get one life. You, you live this life and you try to be um, open and caring about your neighbors. And if you lie or you make a mistake, what do you do? You go and you apologize, you eat the crow. You, you do something wrong, you have to go. It's in you already, the culture gives it to you. You go and you own it, right? In Buddhist culture or in Japanese and Chinese culture, Korean culture, they don't have that. They save face. They're busy saving face. So they'll, if you allow them to lie to you to save face, they, they will, you know, they'll, that, that's a type of, that's a type of healing that they, that's a type of social healing that they have. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to understand them. They're very busy, busy trying to save face and not, you know, like you wouldn't dare if you offended your mother or father. You know, you you wouldn't dare try to lie to them, right? You would you would tell them, I'm sorry. You know what you would have to do to make it better. They don't have the same things, right? It's just it's a difference. Uh -huh. And you know, so in Buddhist culture, you get reincarnated. So you're gonna be worried about dying, not nearly as much. You know, in Christian culture, you die. You you only live once. You die and you get judged. 
yeah, it's pretty serious. Yeah. You know, it's not, uh, you know, get back in line and come back. So they they really did approach the whole thing differently. Um, how does Shinto kind of feature into that? The other um, the other big religion in Japan. Oh yeah, yeah. Do they also have a sort of cyclical reincarnation style? Or? Shinto, you know, like I, I struggled with this for a long time because if you ask the average Japanese person about their spirituality, they'll just deny it. But then you you look at their. I've never been to Japan, but I've seen pictures of, of you know they got like shrines outside their stores and stuff. They're very spiritual people. They just don't think of it the same way we do. Uh, Shintoism is a type of shamanism. Mm. And in what you have in Japan is you have Buddhism that has intermingled with Shintoism. It's very, very confusing uh-huh. unless you look at it that way. I've heard it described once that the Japanese are born Shinto and they die Buddhist. I think that's <laughs> probably true. They'll live Shinto, yeah. They'll have like little little uh, deity Kamiza things going on in their house. I mean, they, they believe in everything has its own deity. Uh, it's a, that is not a Buddhist perspective yeah. <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Do you often, uh, this might be a bit of a point of contention between us, but uh, mm-hmm. do you think that sometimes the uh, religious way or the uh, religious motifs that appear in some of these swordsmanship texts, do you feel as if they sometimes get in the way of understanding what's at work in the art itself? No, no. The the discussion that I just had with you is fairly academic. Most people that are carrying swords today and going to dojos, um, they'll never even have that discussion about the difference between Shintoism and Buddhism because it's a, really, it's a real thing, right? Because mm-hmm. actually, I, I love the aesthetic of Shinto. Uh, I love the gates and I love, the, love what they do with their stones and mm-hmm. I just love that. Um, but uh, it's not Buddhist. Right. <laughs> you know, you don't see a duplicate in India. Um, but no, uh, the, the religious viewpoint is, um, that's the lens with which ancient people looked at the world. It's the very first one. There's no other lens for the most part. And if you look at, um, if you look at the great Christian texts, uh, you'll see recurring themes that, that shape society. Did it shape warfare? Oh yeah. Yeah, you did. It did. Absolutely shape warfare. So if you want to see the difference uh, that I'm talking about in real life, uh, look at the aggression that was committed against China in, in the late 20s, early 30s, by something that the Uni- United Nations didn't exist yet, but America, Germany, France, uh, Spain probably, I could be wrong about that, but Japan all marched on Nanking, which at the time was known as Nanjing. And it's Nanjing now. Yeah, it's Nanjing now, yeah. And you know, it's it's a major metropolitan area with many, many people living there. And the thing that the Americans noticed, and the British noticed actually, when they were marching along along the road to get there, and don't get me wrong, they weren't going there to shake these people's hands, they were going there to kill them. they noticed that they that the Japanese had taken people out of their homes and hung them up, men, women, and children, and did terrible things to them all along the way. They wanted to be first into that city. Um, none of the people that were marching there that were from a Western nation like America or Britain uh, had any real place to put that. You know, I mean, these are we're talking about people. Some of them actually had had lived through 
uh, like if you look at the history of, uh, of um, Smedley Butler, he was a Marine Corps general. Yeah. Uh, he, he was in that assault, and he was in there, he was in that assault with people that had served in the Civil War. So these people were not, I mean, these people were tough as nails. They were as tough as they come. But killing women and children and doing brutal things to people has nothing to do with toughness. Has to do with your perspective on the world. So there was no place for them to put that what they saw. And when they got to Japan, I mean, when they got to China, the Japanese had got got to China. When they got to Nanjing, the Japanese had got there first, and it set the tone for that entire occupation that almost all of those armies followed after the fact. Uh -huh. So those people's lives were cheap, and it was duplicated in spades in the Second World War by Japanese aggression. It's a it's a serious thing. It's, it's one of the main causes for them to have adopted uh, pacifist policy, pacifist foreign policy. So they don't even have an army. Actually, I think they just recently reformed the military. Yeah. They've, so, always, they've had a self-defense force, if I recall. Yep. But yeah, but nothing to assault with, right? Yeah. So that, but that, what I'm trying to point out to you is that, you know, even in our darkest moments, in when we do terrible things to people, um, you, the religious views that shape your culture impact you. And they do inform the difference between right and wrong to you. And it wasn't any different for them. Uh -huh. It was very different. So the, the, the religion, you know, it's just, it's just a difference. Yeah. And, and it shows up in the art form. Indeed. It, it shows up in the very fiber of the art form. Indeed. Uh, for instance, I mean, th th there are concepts. You, you, you talk a, a lot in the dojo uh, with using a motif of, or um, what am I trying to say here? A kind of um, using, using the spirit as kind of a way to talk about uh, really what's going on in your head, or at least what's going on with regards as to what your motives are in executing a certain technique. And while some person like me may not necessarily believe in a literal spirit, mm -hmm. uh, the the term can, I guess, illustrate to a certain extent what somebody's trying to do. If that, if, if that makes any sense, I mean, I may yeah. not necessarily believe that I'm literally projecting my spirit forward, but it gives me the right state of mind mm -hmm. to execute the technique you're trying to teach. If that makes any sense. Well, you're you're getting at one of the problems of studying an ancient sword art is that you know they didn't have science to describe it, yeah. and you know what I would what I would counsel about uh, what we think of as spirit and how it's moved around. Um, you know, we don't know that much as we don't know as much as we think we do scientifically. Uh, meaning that recently there there have been structures in the brain that they they've determined are there to receive quantum information. Why is that there? I don't know. I don't know why it's there. They don't know why it's there. Nobody knows why it's there, but it's there. And that's a particle that, that goes between people. And so something's being carried on that. Uh -huh. Whatever you want to lay, whatever you want to stick on it. There's just more than meets the eyes. Always the thing that I would counsel with that. So when we look at the term spirit in terms of fighting spirit or passive spirit. Or, or open spirit. In terms yes. Of yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that's just the, that's the, that's the closest thing that, that's the closest way to describe what it is because there's no psychological term that fully captures it. And what I mean by that is, is have you, what, 
you don't know if you have a spirit until it's been broken or elevated, right? You, you, you can tell. Like if once you've had your spirit just broken uh, or elevated, uh, you, you know that it's there. But there's no real good psychological terms for that. So a psychologist would never look at someone who has a broken spirit and, and use any word other than broken. I mean, they, they, would, they might dance around it, but I mean, there's stuff missing in that person. Same way with somebody who is indomitable, somebody who has just more uh, gusto and vim and vigor for life than anybody else. I mean, think about some of the people, some of the strongest people in your life that you know that just seem to just keep going. They have, they've harnessed something. And whatever that is, you know, that's just the closest word that we can go to. Uh -huh. And when you're talking about ancient sword arts, uh, it was remarkably important to know something about that. So. For uh, for reference purposes, you know, those people lived shorter lives. Uh, they they ate better food. Probably had a whole lot more sex than we do. They breathed cleaner air. They they lived hard lives on some level, and and some of them were just golden, and were powerful people that were a benefit to everyone in the world, uh -huh. and others. Were just as evil as the ones that we that we heard about this week with the Wetterling case. Yeah. So uh, I mean, human nature has always been there. Is what my point is. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, you're, you know, you're to describe an ancient sword art with another set of words is probably doable. Yeah. I don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that that's, that's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think about reading texts such as Life Giving Sword, for yeah. instance, and there, uh, and there is a lot of there is a lot of Zen there. There's a lot of... There's a lot of Buddhism, yeah. It, it, exactly, yeah. and sometimes uh, for... Maybe it's just a, an artifact of being Western, but it, it seems a bit like a screen you'd have to pass through in order to get to what they're talking about. With you're the sword dead art. on. You're mm -hmm. dead on, Dave. You yeah. know? Uh, so, so, so I don't know. I mean, that's why I think that there is... Uh, there's a bit of ammunition for people who say that, you know, if you're not raised in the culture, you're not going to really fully I appreciate the art, you know? I understand where somebody's coming from with that. I mean, I don't think we would necessarily agree with that statement, but there, there, there might be some truth to the idea that if you are, are not, you know, if you're not fully, uh, if you're not fully cognizant of certain uh, aspects of Zen, you might not have that level of, uh, of of perception into what these people were talking about. But I mean, yeah. If Ultimately, right. though, uh, and one of the things that I would love to that I would love to touch on is that uh, you, you've talked many times about how ultimately you have two hands, you have a sword. There's only so many ways to cut. There's only so many ways to thrust. Mm -hmm. There's and, and and you'll see parallels of this. One, recently, I've, I've looked a lot at uh, Lichtenauer German swordsmanship. Yes, uh, yeah, using using the long sword mm -hmm. or in. The case of my character, the Renaissance Festival, uh, a, a Kriegsmesser, or, or, or something like that. You know, um, you see the stances, the what what we would call in this system kamai, mm -hmm. uh, are very similar. Yeah, you know, and uh, for for instance, I one of the things that frustrates me about martial arts is it might frustrate you is that there a, a good degree of nationalism gets in the way. It a does. Lot of the time, yeah, absolutely does. And do you agree with the idea that if we just dropped a little bit of that, or if we maybe you know slow pump the brakes a little bit on the uh, my my nation's mm -hmm. 
techniques are better because, and we focus on what uh, we shared, uh, we might be able to talk in a more productive manner about the martial arts. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. I, you're, you're, you're correct. The similarities are remarkably striking, and, yeah. and you're going to find them, and they're all in there. And I, it, it also touches on another thing that we teach, uh, and you know, is that there's no ultimate art. There's only people who practice harder than others. Yeah. So it doesn't matter where you're coming from it, with something. It's how you approach it. Right, so yeah. your, your method of, of approach is important, and that's um, that ties directly into what you just said about if you if you didn't understand some of the religious texts with with what's referenced in a book like the Life Giving Sword, uh, you're going to be a little bit lost. And, and truly, people are. But now you understand something about the academic approach that we have here. So uh, there's a text, there's a Buddhist text called the Shoe Presenting Bridge, and that's the first portion of that book, uh, and it's not, it's just referenced. And that's talking about uh, being a diligent student. And then the author, Minunori, goes on to talk about uh, don't confuse learning with knowledge. And as a Westerner, I said, oh, what are you talking about? I'm like maybe 21 years old when mm -hmm. I started thinking about this. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Well, what do you think it is, right? Uh, it's the same argument that my parents said, my parents didn't go to school, my parents said, oh, he's book smart, but he don't know anything about living. You know, I mean, people down there said that. And, yeah. and about that time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like the truth is, you know, like I always tell people it was Houston we have a problem, not New York we have a problem, right? So, like, once you get over the accent, you realize that, yeah, there's smart people everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, that, what, that literally what the author was trying to say was exactly what, what we just said just in a different way there, there's no ultimate style there's only people who train harder yeah. and so the the author was saying don't confuse learning with knowledge meaning that you know and he didn't say it precisely like that he said when you approach someone's house like when you approach a teacher's house you go through a gate don't confuse the gate with with the house you pass through learning but now you're on this path and you'll you'll arrive at knowledge knowledge comes after and we would think of that more of ex uh, how we deal with experience, right? Yeah. It's a very Western viewpoint. Nothing trumps, you know, like that's an American viewpoint that's powerful. Nothing trumps experience, not education, not birthright, mm -hmm. nothing. If you can do it and you've done it before, you know something more about it than the next guy who has not done it. Mm -hmm. And that's a, you know, we've built a whole society on that. Uh, we're getting away from that now because now you have to have a college degree to pour coffee. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's true that, you know, you're not going to get most people aren't going to be able to get past all of that stuff and see the similarities that you were just talking about because they're so wrapped up on, on how they think about it and not really a genuine study or a genuine level of understanding. So you end up with, oh, go ahead. No, I, I think it's inter interesting uh, with the similarities that there aren't more people really harping on them because ultimately... A Japanese person is roughly shaped the exact same as a Norse person, as an Italian person, as a Native American person. We all have the exact same weaknesses. Our arteries are located in the same space. We have the same squishy spots and bone placement. Squishy and, spots, technical term. Yes. And the ultimate goal yeah. is to have the other person on the ground while you are not. So mm -hmm. it makes it only makes sense that the stances and some of the techniques... Work a way. Right, because... You are doing the same thing. You are just doing it without knowing 
you know, back in ancient days when we weren't quite so global, without knowing that the other people exist. And so having to figure out your own way to do the same thing. Right. So yeah, it, it is interesting that people get so wrapped up in the nationalism when really the goal is the same. You yeah. know, have the other person Die. on the ground. <laughs> hey, that's a, that's a very real thing. That I, the, the similarities, um, if you don't draw lines, you, you, you know, if you have chicken soup and beet soup and vegetable soup, and you mix it all together, you got soup, but mm -hmm. it's not the same, right? right? So like, if you don't draw lines, you know, so I, I understand some people's way of looking at it that way, but right. once you get past all of that, it's still making soup. It's just, if you, you know, a chef doesn't make just one kind of soup. So like, he, he's gonna express that art yeah. across many things. And, and I think that that's the bridge. That's one of the things about people that do this, where you can tell the ones that have ascended uh, by how they look at the world. They're no longer, looking at the differences they're looking at the similarities yeah. and it's true uh, and you can go all the way back like in, like uh all of the things that we talked about today um so like if we look at a sword as a tool and we look at uh the notion of spirit as a religion and we look at the idea of of uh, of how people make it through their lives and we talked a little bit about all those things if you look at all primitive cultures You'll see the same things. You'll see stone hammers, stone scrapers, stone knives, stone spears. <laughs> and you move up a little bit, and now you got archery, a spear. Uh, you move up a little bit, and now you got some metal. You a little know, bit of bronze plates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everybody's got it. Everybody's got something like that, yeah. right? And uh, so people aren't really that different, in my opinion. I yeah. and so like yeah, we're all we're all more similar than we are different. Mm. Yeah. And so like having accessibility is. Um, that's a viewpoint that I guess I'm, I'm uncomfortable with. Um, you know, closing it off, I guess, is I'm uncomfortable with closing it. Yeah. So I'd rather be open. If uh, if you had to, you know, if you had to describe one thing that you that a person studying an ancient sword art or an ancient martial art can get to enrich their lives with that they wouldn't be able to get elsewhere, what do you think that would be? Oh, that's a tall order. Um, you've heard me say that I cross the street with my empty hand no. at night, uh, and I negotiate my pay raise with my swordsmanship, and I yeah. very much do that. And so um, I think, number one, it's a misnomer that, that, the, that the martial art is just for in the dojo or just for whatever you're going to apply it to at the moment. I think that the biggest thing that you could get from studying a, a Japanese sword art isn't really substantially different from what you might get from studying a really hardcore, as I say, a fencing art, yeah. or any other bladed instrument art where you've got a lot of skin in the game. Mm -hmm. So in none of these practice modes, um, depending on how the training is structured, not on, how, not on the techniques, not on the sword, but on how the training is structured, in none of these modes, are you going to encounter something that doesn't cause you to put something down in you that's weak and pick something up in you that's strong? So if you think back to you, the very early days of your training, yeah. you didn't want to lose, right? It sucked, right? You get in there, you do your shobu, and for people who have never seen it, it's kind of scary looking. Uh, it's, it's wooden swords, and they're not padded, and there's danger and risk of broken bones, and there's all the speed and intent that you can get uh, you can get as close to it as possible but you can't quite go over the line right yeah. and 
but you you can't do that unless you balance something about your personality better. Otherwise, you get crushed and defeated by your opponent. Your your opponent will either oppress you spiritually, he'll oppress you physically, he will oppress you technically. And you know, it's the, those are the fibers that make somebody that that isn't. That's what makes a person strong. Is like you know, what is the combination of those things that are twisted together? And you know, like some people uh, are just naturally better than others and other people like myself just have to train really hard to yeah. get any good I've, I've heard you describe that the people who are really naturals rarely stick with it that's true yeah it, that's the way it is with most things I think uh, that's the frustrating thing with a lot of gymnastics I think that the teachers are very lazy and they don't understand their own methodology and they they don't know how to they don't know because people can do this stuff right but if the teacher is not up to spending time with the student, the student's not going to send anywhere. So they always want, uh, gymnastics teachers always want people that are natural talents. So they don't got to do as much work. And it's true. Okay. And what happens to these people in, in the martial arts setting is that they, they do pretty good. And you've seen this. How many people have you trained with that no longer are training? Uh, they, they experience early success early on. They do really, really well. And all of a sudden something happens. Bam. And they get knocked over. They don't know how to overcome anything. They don't know anything about overcoming anything. So they've missed a, a critical lesson somewhere, huh. and they, they're not willing to take that one from the dojo. And you know, if you if you rely only on natural talent, then woof, you know, that's a, that's a nice bet. It's a good bet, but it's not the best one. Yeah, the best one would be somebody who has natural talent who's gone through some kind of crucible, huh. so they know how to harness it. It's powerful. Um, but it's true. Uh, if you think about what happened to you when you were training, uh, uh, for people who have never seen a Tenren set up, this is a this is a target that you hit with a wooden sword. Uh, in our dojo, it's just a big giant tire on the side of the. It's yeah. mounted up and it's big, uh, and you can beat it up and and uh, you go in there and you, you run up to it and you hit it with this with this stick we call a boken. And if you you probably remember when this happened. Uh, your confidence level uh, shifted in the dojo because I saw it happen. You ran up, you'd hit it, and then you'd look at me. Did I do it right? You didn't say it, but you were looking for that. Do you remember that? Yeah. And then it was time. There came a time in your training where you needed to know that you're good enough and you're accepted. And so what I tell you, you have acceptance just by being here, right? And, you know, your technique took off yeah. at that point. Uh, and that's that's a training moment that actually does occur and there's different well it's true people go through things and you as a teacher you have to wait for certain people to, some people coming up here some people coming down I mean they're just different oh. and for for Dave being accepted and, and knowing that he was good enough was a pretty serious thing that he needed from from an outside source because like the internal mechanism to to feed this wasn't quite there yet and I don't think it's the problem now <laughs> I, I, I like to think that yeah but that's maturity right that's yeah. what maturity is and so like your personality balances a little bit and and so you do get different things um, and, and that that that's directly related to your training not necessarily to the culture in which it happened yeah so that's what I would say excellent excellent well uh, Kirsten did you have any other uh, questions as far as uh the lovely weapons we see up here, or the uh, or, or the uh, training methodology he's talking about. Um, none that weren't answered, yeah. and or that wouldn't take another fifty hours of podcast. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I I do 
I'm very verbose. No, I'm there, sorry. there's a reason that yeah. it takes years and years to study because you can't just pick one subject and talk on it for 20 minutes. That's not. Yeah. That's almost doing an injustice to the art. Um, that is true. So <laughs> I have five million questions, and I don't think any of them can be answered in time. Well, see, I mean, I, 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 I do not rule out a part two at some point. <laughs> I, do, I don't rule that out at all. Well, you're you're welcome. I think that your 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 main question was what's different about Kaishin. Yeah. Know? And so, in a nutshell, now that you've heard all of that, what yeah. I would say is different is that nothing is hidden. Mm-hmm. Uh, the training has been standardized. Mm-hmm. There are there are uh, seated kata, standing kata. There's actual shobu. Yeah. Uh, you learn all of this stuff, and you learn it in a way that isn't sterile, meaning that you are challenged personally along the way in different ways. Yeah. For different people, it's just different. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I. There's no uh, secret sealed book. Yeah. That you keep in a back room. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, it's, 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 it's here. It's under the rug. Now, um, I, I, I've also noticed you, uh, to, to, to go back to a quick anecdote, I was asking about, uh, there was a specific technique we were trying to, uh, to, to process at, at, the, at the time. And uh, I asked, uh, I, you told me to take up a certain posture. And I said, is it this? And I, was, and I used the Japanese term for it. And I believe the phrase you told me is that uh, a mass in Latin will not save anyone's soul. That's <laughs> true. And so, and so, one of the things that I notice, and uh, listeners, if any of you are local and you come to train at this school, which I really, really recommend you do to check out, um, you, you'll, you'll notice that the sensei, sensei does not really use um, as much of the of the original Japanese ter- uh, terminology as I think maybe other schools kind of get very. Uh, very particular about about sticking to, uh, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I mean, yeah, there's still a lot of it there. We we call a boken a boken. We don't call it a wooden sword. You know, that's just that, that that's that that's the, that's the term we use. But you you don't get caught up and anal about about the uh, about the original terms. You you rather people understand them in their own vernacular. It's a very Martin Luther, I guess, way of trying to teach. I, you're, you're probably right about that. I, I think it does a, a terrible injustice to Japanese culture to try to act Japanese and not try to actually understand the art form. Yeah. So it, it's, it, it is a really, it's a serious sticking point for me because I'm surrounded by other schools that are busy doing their very, their very best uh, uh, Toshishiro Mifune, yeah. you know, uh, and not really getting anything, you know, yeah. I, I, I just rather, it's, it's not genuine. And, you know, uh, the Japanese students that train here, you know, they know the difference, you know. Yeah. I, they, I mean, I, I, they, they could suffer with me attempting to teach in Japanese, but it would be terrible for those folks. Yeah. And, you know, they, they don't have to, I mean, they can get it because they can speak English and I can communicate it to them and they can, co- they can take it and mull it over. But you're right, it's, a, it's an accessibility moment. Yeah. So um, we're we're coming to the end of our uh, of our time together here, and I, I I would love to talk for another couple of hours, and we'll maybe hold out for part two for that. But uh, uh, where can people find out more about the school? Uh, where can they find the school? And uh, what have you got coming up? Uh, well, we're we're supposed to go to a Zen Box uh, for Ramen Attack. Uh, there's a demonstration that's later in the month. I think it's twenty uh, eighth, maybe. And you know we. We're in the demonstration season now, so we'll yeah. do two or three demonstrations a year. You recently had one at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival. Yeah, yeah, and uh, th- those are fairly important because we're not a commercial operation. Uh, but if you want to know more, you can go to the website, it's kaishindojo.com, mm-hmm. and uh, you can type my name in and type in Japanese, so you'll probably find it. 
yeah, it's pretty easy. Um, there's a lot of detractors out there, but you can't blaze a trail without arrows in your back, and I've never been afraid of that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe the sagas of some of those can be safe for part two as well. No, it'll sound too much like sour grapes, right? I'd rather just, rather just be good at what I'm doing, and yeah. those people can hopefully be good at what they're doing. Absolutely. Uh, Kirsten, any final thoughts? Um, no, I think this has been incredibly enlightening. Uh, most Thanks. of my martial arts martial arts experience has been with unarmed so um, just learning a bit more about the swordsmanship and uh, more of the lore and history behind that and the whys has been super cool yeah. we'll include a link to the website in the show notes oh wow Thanks. absolutely yeah. thank you and uh, there's, a, there's a couple of great videos I think that uh, our listeners would love to see mm-hmm. if you ever want to see a Japanese sword uh, puncture uh, what approximates European armor uh, <laughs> we, we, th- there's a video for that and I'd love for you to see it I can't wait uh, many people get caught up in saying the. I, I've heard this claim so many times that the katana is not a thrusting weapon, and it's simply not true. <laughs> Pretty much anything that's sharp can be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. You know, hammer's a thrusting weapon no if you try kidding. hard enough. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, I guess if, if I could like pick uh, what I would think would be the coolest medieval weapon, it would be like I saw a Polish warhammer once in a museum. Yeah, and it was lovely and pretty ugly looking in terms of what it did, but. Uh, it was more than a meat hook to me, I guess. So, oh, yeah. Uh, but I, it, I can see how you'd use that. <laughs> uh, Sensei Kilgore, any final thoughts? Uh, yeah. Uh, when, you're, when you're training uh, in anything um, and, you're, and you're following any kind of passion, that's the main fuel of your life at that time. And however you get to where you're going is going to depend on how much you dedicate yourself to it. And it, there's no ultimate anything. There's only people who try harder than others. So it's, it's the rule in the dojo. It'll, it's got to be the same elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. If, if we live in any kind of fairness in this world, but, you know. <laughs> and it's not always guaranteed. Correct, yeah, but trying hard is if, if you come from here. Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, uh, listeners, thank you so much for sticking with us for another episode here. Uh, we promise we will get a full website back up and running Soon? (laughs) I don't know how soon soon is, but uh, for now you can find all of our episodes at soundcloud.com slash fightcastpodcast. And uh, please also check out our sponsor, True Stone Coffee Roasters. Uh, In the... uh, Yeah, the the best way I can uh, close this is to simply say uh, keep training and uh, keep working hard, and uh, uh, we'll join you next time. Thanks so much. Bye. Go above and beyond and follow us at Fightcast Podcast and check out our blog and new episodes at fightcastpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Now go forth and conquer. <laughs>